Good morning. I think I need to turn myself on here. Can everybody hear me? Good. I've been reminded this morning, as I've been thinking about the passage before us today, we'll continue looking at uh, really the resolution of David's sin with Bathsheba, really the restoration of David back to fellowship with God, that I need to be very careful how I speak about this man, Number one, I believe I will see him, and uh, he may have a few words for me. (laughs) But uh, number two, and this is really uh, the emphasis of this series we've been studying, we're looking at people like us. And uh, as David failed, so I fail. And... uh, Lord willing, as David is restored, so I too experience restoration from sin and weaknesses in my life. And uh, certainly don't want to be looking down at him. We want to learn from him. We want to learn from his fall. We want to learn from his restoration. About how uh, we can be restored to the Lord, really how the Lord restores us to himself. Please forgive me as I find room for all my things up here. With that, let's go ahead and read Second Samuel and chapter 12. Second Samuel, chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring men who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, 
because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. We'll stop there for now. We'll continue with the rest of the chapter later. So we have here quite a mess that David have, has left. If you remember from last time, David has taken the wife of, a, of another man, uh, committed adultery with her. When she became pregnant, he tried to hide it, first by getting the man Uriah to, to come back home from the war and, and be with his wife as if it was his child. And when David couldn't get that to happen, he had the man killed. And so he committed adultery, murder, and we could really add a whole list of other sins that David committed at this particular time. And there's a couple of things that I note here. First of all, uh, this was a period of some length of time that David was in this state of sin or unrepentant. We are seeing here the restoration of David. Well, at least nine months have passed because the child has now been born that the sin was committed, that was the product of the sin between David and Bathsheba. For nine months, David has been, as he says himself, without the joy of God's salvation. And uh, it's, it seems like an amazing thing to me. How could he go so long? Why wouldn't he repent and confess his sin? But unfortunately, I have times in my life I can point to, and, and, and it's uh, really deceiving. Uh, I shouldn't say deceiving. I should say we deceive ourselves. It says this, uh, the heart is desperately uh, wicked. Uh, sorry, I have written here. The, ha- the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can deceive ourselves. Uh, we, we like to think, well, it was such an obvious sin. David knew he was in sin all along. All this time he was gritting his teeth and refusing to repent. I believe David found ways of justifying himself throughout this sin. I, I don't know how he justified maybe the first act with Bathsheba. Maybe he said, oh, you know, I just had that weakness. You know, we're made out of dust. We all, all stumble. But maybe after that he was thinking, well, you know, it will be a terrible thing if the sin is discovered. You know, God's name will be you know, blasphemed. I have to hide this sin. And he started maybe with trying to get Uriah back and eventually killed Uriah and felt, well, who knows? He could have died in the battle anyways. And, you know, it would have been a lot worse if this thing would have gotten out. He may have had ways of justifying it. I don't know how David justified it. But one way or another, David justified to himself his sin and wasn't aware fully of, of his state of separation from God at this time. He was he, perhaps he, he realized things weren't as, 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 as good as they should be. But one way or another, he didn't realize just how bad he had it, how far from God he was at this time, until God accomplishes what he accomplished in this passage. And I said I have experience of things like that because I do. I remember when uh, Eliana was uh, diagnosed before she was born with having hydrocephalus and, and Downs. Uh, and it really hit me like a, a ton of bricks, as you say. And it really brought me into fellowship with God that I didn't enjoy for some period of time before. And I don't know how long that was. I would say at least months. There's been at least several months that I really wasn't enjoying my, I should say, God's salvation. I wasn't enjoying God's salvation. And that period of time wasn't necessarily just disciplined. I think there was a trial. There was various things God was accomplishing. But certainly it made me realize all of a sudden, boy, I wonder how long I wasn't enjoying God's salvation. Because that period actually brought me into a freshness of God's salvation in my life. And so I, I, I have to be careful before we, because before we judge David too harshly, but he was at least nine months without fellowship with God here. 
as, as uh, we can appreciate fellowship with God. The other thing we note here is it's really God that finally had to do something about it. You'd think, well, you know, David should be miserable. He'll go before the Lord after trying to hold out for so long and he'll repent and, and then be restored into fellowship with God. But he never did. God had to take the first step. And it's really wonderful as you think of it. Typically, we will say it's the, the uh, injuring party that should go to the injured party and, and ask for forgiveness and restore the relationship. If somebody hurts you, if they're really mean to you, and you walk away injured, and there's obviously a break in fellowship, you'd expect, well, you know, I, ho- I hope they'll come back and make things right with me. I'm not going to go to them and try to do anything. They're the ones who hurt me. And yet, David hurt God, as we see here. God says, why did you despise me? And later, David will acknowledge, acknowledge, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and committed this evil in your sight. He, he hurt God. And yet God is the one that comes after him to seek restoration. We have such a wonderful God. And we're out of fellowship with him. He's not the one that's missing out of it. The loss is all ours. And yet he loves us so much, he wouldn't have us stay in that state of separation from him. He wants to restore us, really for our good. We have here God going after David for David's good. What a wonderful God we have. Next thing we'll see here, we'll see there's a couple of main tools that God is using to accomplish this in David's life. There's two main tools here. The first one we could call the Word of God. It was Nathan. Uh, Nathan comes as a prophet of God and he declares to David that he'd start by telling David a story about a rich man and a poor man and the rich man taking advantage of the poor man. And David is, is so moved by it that he says, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan points the finger at him and says, that's you. And he describes to David how he really fits the bill. He really is just as bad as the man that he recognized was worthy of death. And there's a verse uh, I really like in Hebrews. It says this, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Again, our, our sinful heart deceives us. We, we find ways of justifying our sins and trying to cover it. And God that can see everything, he sees exactly things as they are. And in his word, he describes them as they are. So that if we look in his word, or in this case, he really brought his word to David, it made David's sin very plain to see. He made it very easy to David to see his sin. And uh, we have the same opportunity when we're out of fellowship with God and we're in a state of sin, and really all the time, to go to the Word of God and see how things really are in our lives. We have this covering, if you would, on our lives that our, our deceitful heart is creating, trying to give ourselves the best image of what we're like. And we can go to the Word of God and it will pierce it and show us what we're actually like. But it's a choice that we have to make. We don't have to do it. I don't have to read the Word of God. Or I can read it and not apply it to my life. David could have said, when, when, when Nathan was announced, Nathan the prophet has arrived. He could have said, close the doors. <laughs> he wasn't ready for him. Or Nathan could have started talking and David could have said, well, I'll let him say his thing. and you know, I'm just not going to listen to what he says. not going to apply it to my heart. It's probably a trap anyway. 
No, he listened. He listened to Nathan and applied it to his life. Um, we have that in our Bible study. At the end of every Bible study, we try to give people a chance. Well, how? what does it mean today in Fremont, 2009, to Noah Shapiro? What does the passage mean? And we have a choice when we look at the Word of God. Are we really going to spread our lives before God and let Him speak to us about our life out of His Word? The choice that we have. It says there's a condemnation, really, to those who don't. Jesus said it. He said this, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. When we have a reluctance to approach the word of God or to apply it to our lives, there's a reason. There's something nasty being covered over by our exterior. We're trying to keep away from God. And really, we should open up. We should let the light of God shine. There was a time in uh, my life, I called it my super spiritual time. I wasn't really that spiritual, but that's what I thought at the time. It was, uh, Rick might remember it, uh, after Charlie's wedding, Sharon and I were both there and we saw the wedding, Charlie and Tacey, and really the testimony of that wedding, of, of how really the Lord brought them together. It was of God. And uh, I mean, Sharon were dating at the time. I, I was just saved. And we could kind of tell that our relationship wasn't the same. There was a problem. And I remember calling Rick that night and I'm like, you know, I don't know. You know, what should God do? And I remember Rick telling me something, you know, God is a jealous God. He wants you to be the first in his life. And uh, I, you know, took it, accepted it, and, you know, we and Misha talked about it, we decided to break up our relationship. We were dating at the time. It was two years before we, the Lord brought us back together. And uh, that started what I called my super spiritual time. I was, you know, really excited about, you know, doing this difficult thing to, to be at fellowship with God. And I was. It was the right thing to do. And it gave me such clarity into my life. I started recognizing sin and maybe other areas the Lord was speaking to me. You see, the Lord was speaking to me about that. And until I dealt with that, the Lord had nothing else to say to me. But when I dealt with it, I moved it out of the way. All of a sudden, I saw other areas in my life that were in sin. And I was like excited. Okay, I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to deal with that. And I was thinking, I can just do it. You know, I can live from now on a life free of sin. And I remember I shared that with a campus crusade leader. Came to, uh, I had, we, had, we had lunch, and uh, I told him about that. You know, I, I see what the Lord wants me to do. He just wants me to not sin anymore. And, uh, you know, I think he saw that I was setting myself up to a fall. And um, he shared with me this illustration. He said, you know, our sin is kind of like an iceberg, you know, floating in the ocean. And, uh, you know, the sun comes, and that's God. And he can melt, you know, the iceberg. As you, see, as, as you expose it to God and allow God to work with it, it'll, it'll melt the top of the iceberg. Do you know what happens when the top of the iceberg melts? Well, more comes to the surface. Because 90% of the iceberg is under the water. It has to do with the density of ice compared to water. Always, only 10% of the iceberg will be visible. doesn't matter how big it is. You're only seeing 10% of it. And, and that's the truth about our life. We're aware of maybe 10% of the sin that's actually in our life. Actually, the, the being short of the glory of God. Sin really means being short of the glory of God. And we're really only aware of, you know, probably less than 10% of it. So, so I only was aware of that, and maybe if I would deal with that, God would bring more to the surface. He didn't want me to have this idea that I can really live a life free of sin. 
The truth is, hopefully, as God shows me more sin in my life, I, I, I deal with that sin as well. And that's, that's what the process of sanctification in the Christian life is. It's really, as God reveals sin in our life, let's deal with it right then and there. That, that would be the right thing to do. Uh, so that was the first tool, really, that God used in David's life, was really the Word of God. And then we see, uh, picking up in verse 10, we really have another tool being brought here. God says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, <coughs> Behold, I will raise up adverse... <coughs> Let me see. I'm supposed to have some water here. Father Matt was faithful and put water there for me. Excuse me. <coughs> Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. What we really have here is God applying the rod of discipline, discipline to David's life. And we might say, why? Why apply discipline? Just say the word. <laughs> Just tell David where he erred and David will change and do the right thing. Well, that would be wonderful if that's the way it worked. But uh, strangely enough, it doesn't work in our lives. Because it's not just a lack of information that leads us to sin. If it was really a lack of information, God could simply reveal to David, look, this is what, where you actually are. This is actually your sin. And David would say, thanks for the information. Now I know what I did wrong. I'll repent and I'll do the right thing from now on. If it were only so easy. The problem is, we're creatures that have more than just a mind. We also have a will. And our will, a lot of time, doesn't want to repent. Even when we know the right thing to do, we will choose not to do it. We know what's the wrong thing to do and we will choose to do it. That's called, called our will. And unfortunately, God has to break that will. That, that thought that it's actually somehow better for us to go ahead and do that thing which is wrong instead of doing what is right. God has to just show us how, how wrong we are. It's, it's never to our advantage to do what's wrong. And that's really the application of, of the road or discipline. It's really to, to teach people. And we use it in our society in various ways. We have jails. Uh, people know what the law is, and yet they choose to break the law. So we have a jail. We try to convince them, look, it's a really bad idea to break the law. We don't want you to break the law. We, we'll use it with our kids. And we'll tell the kids the right thing to do. A lot of times the kids will choose not to do the right thing. And we, we come up with some form of discipline to try to show them, look, you really want to do the thing that is right. And that's what God is doing here in David. He's really convincing him, look, it's foolish. It's foolish to go against me in this. You really want to change. You want to do what I want you to do. That, that's the rod of, the rod of discipline in David's life. And it might seem like harsh, and I'm so glad, glad about this. Because I know as a parent, sometimes I don't do a good job applying discipline to my, my children. Uh, I think I probably err most of the time on the light side. I, I don't discipline them at all when I should discipline them. But I could potentially discipline them too much because I'm a human and I make mistakes. Well, God never makes mistakes. He always knows just how much discipline we need to help turn us from choosing to do what we know is wrong into choosing to do what is right. And that's the case in David. We, we, we could see a lot of it ourselves. Uh, the discipline includes 
uh, warfare in his own house. If you remember, the whole thing started with David trying to avoid war that he needed to be involved with. He had a job to do, which was to fight against people of Ammon. And he decided, no, I'd rather stay in Jerusalem and relax and kind of enjoy being around the house. Well, God says, well, from now on you'll have war in your house. You'll never depart. Boy, that's some, some uh, discipline. Decide you didn't want to be involved in war for me? Well, now you will be. You can't get away from it. It's in your own house from now on. Second is David took somebody else's wife. Well, God's going to take David's wives and he's going to give them to somebody else. Well, if, that's pretty hard, but that's right. We recognize it's right. It really showed David it's foolish. It's foolish to do these things that I think will somehow end me up on the top hand and, and, and have things better when they're really going to be to my worst. Really, it's an appropriate discipline to the particular crime that David has committed. <clears throat> All right, well, praise God, as, as, uh, as difficult as these experiences must be to David, it accomplishes the result that God was after. David is not confessing his sin. We see it in verse... Uh, Said in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, just to make sure we don't think this is some sort of a light, uh, alright God, you win, I lose. I'll admit it, I'll confess I sin. This was real conviction of sin. If you would, turn with me to Psalm 51. It's good to see what's actually happening in the heart of David. Because I think we can be sometimes miss some of the the essence of repentance and conviction of sin, and you, you'd have you'd really go far uh, you, 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 to try to find something better than this than Psalm 51, as far as describing what it means to be convicted of your sin and to repent of your sin. Uh, and we'll start really in the introduction to Psalm 51. It says to the chief musician. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bath- into Bathsheba. So, I mean, this is it. I mean, the Bible tells us this psalm was written afterward. This is how David felt as a result of Nathan coming in and uh, rebuking him uh, for his sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity and cleanse me for my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me, with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. We'll go ahead and stop there. But I hope you get at least one thing coming very clearly out of this. 
David really now saw his sin as God saw his sin. He felt dirty, contaminated. He realized he was an offense to God as he was. And he's begging God to cleanse him, to deliver him from this sin. And this is, to me, this is what repentance, or the very core of repentance is coming to see my sin as God sees it. That's really, we talk about repentance, it's, well, it's turning from my sin and going to God. Well, what is it that causes me to turn? When I see my sin as God sees it, I want to turn away from it and do what God wants me to do. When I, when I have the same mind as God has about my sin and really about the way I should live my life, that's when I'm going to align myself with God. And that's what happened. God, Nathan, God through Nathan, really brought this out in, in David, in the verses that we've seen, by, by using his word and applying discipline to his life. The other thing that I see here, which we also have for us in the uh, chapter itself, where David, David talks to Nathan and he says, uh, we see, we really, we see it in how Nathan responds. He says, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. David didn't know what was going to happen to him. Now, today we talk a lot about, you know, once in Christ and Christ forever. And praise God it's true. Once you're, you're saved, once you're born again, once God puts you in Christ, you really are saved forever. That's not going to change. But David didn't have all the verses we have in the New Testament. He didn't know. He didn't have the assurance of salvation that we have. Um, and I want to be careful how I say this. Because it's true. It's true that once saved, we're saved forever. But... I think sometimes people use the fact that they've prayed a prayer and, uh, and maybe even they are truly saved, people who might be truly saved. They look at assurance of salvation and feel that there's nothing to worry about when they commit sin. They really, they commit sin with impunity. And I know this about myself. I know this about myself in my life, thinking that, well, I'm saved. I know I shouldn't do this, but I can do this and I'm still going to remain saved. You'll really find very little in the Bible to support that kind of behavior. You're not going to... Yes, it's true, once you're saved, you're saved forever. But there's very severe warnings in the Bible to think, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer. Now, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved. There's a lot of warnings, uh, like the one in, in 1 John, it says, let no, one be, let no one deceive you. It says, he who sins is of the devil. And really what it talks about there is, is practicing sin in our life. The Lord says this, you, you, you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say. There's, there's a lot of people who will profess Christ, and yet they're not really saved. And the sin will demonstrate that they're not saved. The position that we can sin with impunity and not worry about consequences, is unbiblical, to say the least. Okay, there's no room in the Bible to continue in sin, to walk in doing the things we know God doesn't want us to do, and to somehow feel comfortable about, well, I'm saved. I don't really have to worry about that. In some way, David's fear here of what would happen 
was genuine and, 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 and logical. What will God do to me? I have sinned. He realizes he sinned against God. Praise God that God does not cast us off. And in fact, he, he replies to David with this assurance, God has already taken your sin. He's already taken care of it. There's never a time in which we come to God confessing and repenting our sin and God says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. We, we might think that it's reasonable for God to be that way, but he's always the father of the prodigal. He wants to be there before the son does. He was the one who caused David to turn from his sin in order to be restored into fellowship, in order for David to be restored into fellowship. The whole purpose here is really God wanted to, David to be restored into fellowship with himself. There was never a doubt in God's mind as to whether David is saved or not. And he, and he immediately relieves David of the fear. As soon as David says, I have sinned, Nathan assures him, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. God is always more ready to welcome us than we are to come to him. But there should never be a reason for us to doubt and to not turn to God. We should come. God is, is always waiting there with open arms for us. Now, there's the... Uh, I mentioned that what God was working here in order to bring David back into fellowship with him. There's a verse that David says, saying, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David recognizes that he is without joy here. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John. Chapter 1. First John, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John starts here with a description of the Lord Jesus. And you can kind of sense, as John is, is starting this out, that he's struggling to wrap his hand around the fact that he's going to disclose to us. He's, he's saying that which was from the beginning. He's trying to, to describe the Lord. And he, he, he comes to this amazing verse in verse 3. He says, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What John is trying to bring here to the mind of the reader is the fact that we're talking about a real relationship with God. When we're talking here about Christianity and, and you were invited into the door and you were here and you're hearing the message being preached, 
and there's a fellowship here, and there's uh, certain things that people here do to be part of the fellowship. John is, is clarifying here, look, we're talking about a relationship with God. You're here to have nothing less than a relationship with God, with the one that has made you. There's a verse in, in uh, Colossians that says this, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The amazing fact of salvation is that God comes and enters into your life. He comes because he wants to have a relationship with you. And it is that relationship he has with you that is really what eternal life is all about. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And yet, we can be in this relationship with God and stumble like David. He had a relationship with God. We're out of fellowship with him and we'll cry out as David did, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Well, that's what this connects in verse 4. John says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John wanted us to have this joy. God saved us to have a relationship with him and fellowship with him And that is to be the source of our Christian joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from this relationship with God. And yet it's possible to lose it as David is. Not the relationship with God, not eternal life, but the joy that you were meant to have here on earth, you can lose. And that's why John is writing these verses. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. What is he writing? Well, he continues, This is the message we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. All we need to continue to have this joy is to walk in the light. And to walk in the light is exactly what we talked about before. When I sin, when I stumble against God, I come back to him and I confess my sin, as David finally does here. And David's joy was restored because his fellowship with God was restored. Our Christian joy depends upon this continuing fellowship with God, which we were created to have. And that's that's what David finally enters. And, and we'll see it now as we continue uh, at uh, 2 Samuel and finish the chapter we'll see the fact that God has now restored this fellowship, or David has now been restored into fellowship with God and can once again enjoy the wonderful God, that, the wonderful plan that God has for his life, to enjoy this joy and, and uh, uh, the peace and all the things that really should be ours in God, and which we lose when we step out of fellowship with God. So Second Samuel chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. 
How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her to lay and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the, by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Yedidiah, because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over the brickworks. So he did with all the cities of the people of Ammon when David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So the first thing we see here happening is, is the Lord struck David's son and uh, this was obviously a terrible thing for David. Uh, really part of the consequence of his sin against the Lord. But the wonderful thing here is that David then cast himself upon the Lord. You don't see him walking away bitter. Uh, I know sometime the Lord will, will discipline me and I can have a bad attitude about it. And yet, David recognizes that the Lord is doing it out of love. There's a a passage in uh, Hebrews that says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom, whom he receives. You know who wrote that? was David's son. And maybe it was David who told Solomon that. And then Solomon wrote it down. And David, David's realizing here, well, you know, it's a terrible thing, but he, he saw the righteousness of God and he saw the love of God in all of this. And maybe he could already sense that this was really for his good. I was amazed to hear, uh, my wife mentioned it to me uh, last week, I guess it was shared in the prayer meeting, that there was a, uh, a couple that lost a child the same age as my two-month-old son and yet was able to discern God is, is doing wonderful things in my life as a result. A terrible thing happened to me but God is doing a wonderful thing in my life. And, and that's wonderful when we're so connected to the Lord that even while we're suffering 
we can see God is good. And, and we see this continuing as, as the child finally dies, and David, rather than going and weeping more, he goes to the house of the Lord and worships the Lord. And again, that shows when you really... Worship literally means appreciating God for who he is. And David was able through, through this terrible follow-up to the sin to still appreciate God for who God is in the midst of it. And that really shows that restoration of the relationship he had with God. The next thing we see is uh, the situation here with Bathsheba. And uh, it says that David comforted Bathsheba. How can you comfort her? You just lost your own son too. David needs someone to comfort him. Well, the wonderful thing is David has someone to comfort him. It says uh, this in, in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God who comforts us that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. David was comforted first by God. And I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, it could be that as he was praying for the child's life, maybe the Lord shared with him, well, you know, I'm taking your son, but your son is going to be with me. Because we see later on, David says, I can't bring him back, I'm going to go to be with him. So maybe that was the comfort with which God comforted David. And then David was able to pass that comfort to Bathsheba. But now, now there was, he, he was, he was comforted, he could comfort others as well. Uh, the last thing we see, is uh, the end of the passage is once again this war with, with Ammon. It keeps coming up because David didn't finish it the first time. Well, now you see David going into it with all of his heart. He goes in there, he, he takes the city, he takes the spoil with his own hands, he takes the crown from the king. He's now, you could tell David is really into serving the Lord. Before, maybe it was, you know, an, some, oh, I'm okay, I'm in this war, I have to defeat this enemy too. Oh, there are other people I have to fight. Well, you see that David's really... <coughs> Now, serving the Lord with all his heart. And that's also something that comes with the restoration from the Lord. We don't serve him as Martha did. You know, we're, we're distracted with many things we're trying to do. We just love the Lord. And now out of love, we want to serve the Lord and do what the Lord wants us to do. That's David's restoration. Just to close, I have one, one final thought here. And it goes back to, to David comforting Bathsheba. It says that, so he bore, so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Yedidiah, because of the Lord. Yedidiah literally means friend of God. We might go back in our mind, I, I was doing it yesterday, and, and, and think, David is doing the same thing in, in a worldly sense now that he did nine months earlier, or whenever that was. And yet before, it ended up in this huge disaster. And now it ends up with a great blessing, because Solomon is really the next person in the chain that's going to lead to Christ. And, and you can see it also with the fact that it says the Lord loved him. And the Lord named him friend of God. Something wonderful came out of, of the same thing David did, effectively. Nine, something terrible came nine months before. Something wonderful came out now. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is the Lord. Jesus says this, I am the vine. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. 
When David was out of fellowship with God, everything he did went to lie. Everything he did ended up with a mess. And when I tried to walk outside of, of, of fellowship with Christ, even uh, uh, try to do things that are, might appear good, like teach a Bible study or preach, nothing good will ever come out of it. No, nothing good will come out of you even trying to serve the Lord when it's out of fellowship with God. But when you're in fellowship with God, God is using you. You become an extension, a tool that God is using to bring blessing in your life and also in the lives of others. So as, as we might be aware of sins in our life or maybe not even aware, and we turn to the Word of God, and, and God, for our good, opens our eyes and shows us areas in our lives that need to be worked on, and we confess them and bring them before the Lord, we become a channel. We become a channel of blessing. We have the joy of the Lord, and we also become a blessing to others, that they can also have the joy of the Lord and be blessed by Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example you show us in David. Lord, we confess this is us. We look at David and his stumbling in sin and uh, look at our own lives and our lives of stumbling in sin. And Lord, we're so happy that you show here your determination of restoring us into fellowship with yourself. Lord, we know it is because you want to make, to make a beautiful thing out of our lives. Lord, we ask that you will never give up on us. Continue to come after us and help us more and more be yielded to you. Let you uh, show us any areas in which we fall short and make us sensitive and tender to touch, responding to you and letting you use our life for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.